A reading from Genesis. Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife so that I may go into her, for my time is complete. So Laban gathered together all the people of the palace, of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I, did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, this is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. When Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Romans. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution 
or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Another parable Jesus put before the crowds. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. And when it was full, they drew it ashore sat down and put the good into baskets throughout the bath. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The Gospel of the Lord. I was talking to some people at the 8 o'clock service, and this actually happened to me um, younger. I think this has been a, been, a, been a trend for many of us, is that um, this mustard seed parable um, is sort of the beloved one and has, has resulted in the creation of jewelry that has a mustard seed in the middle of a marble or a glass or in a bracelet. Just out of curiosity, anybody ever seen one of those? It's great, right? You know, actually, the mustard seed is not that small. If you've seen them before, um, I mean, my daughter can pick them up with her fingers. There are seeds much smaller than mustard seeds, you know? I mean, like poppy seeds are, are considerably so- smaller, and they were at the time, around at the time of Jesus. Um, I'm getting ready to mess with it some more in a second, but, y- you know, um, it's really a great story because traditionally, you know, I think it, it, the, the images that, that faith or that many things in our life that are good, they start quite small. I mean, so mustard's not the smallest. That's fine. Start small. And it turns out to be, uh, well, it can get kind of big. It's not really a tree. It's like a woody ornamental or a, or a, or a shrub, right? I mean, that's considerable growth. Um, I, I want to say my own faith journey in general worked like that, you know, and, and maybe that's one way to hear the parable of the yeast as well. A yeast starts out... <laughs> That starts out really, really small, you know. They, they didn't have the Fleischmann's packet, so, so yeast was actually invisible, you know. It was sort of within the air or it wasn't. Uh, so 
started out so small it was invisible, but grew enough to leaven the whole dough. And, and you know, I think there's a very traditional way that's very good to hear these stories that, that hopefully our faith starts out that small and hopefully one of the things that faith does is, is, it, is it leavens the loaf for the world, right? Is it, frankly, it causes us to rise. I mean, those are lovely things. I'm pretty sure they're not what Jesus is talking about is the only thing, because it turns out there's a lot of rules around these things that kind of have washed over us. One of the rules is that it was illegal at the time of Jesus to sow mustard into your fields or into your garden. It was against Jewish law. The reason being is that mustard's an invasionary weed. Uh, It would be sort of like having a tomato patch that you purposefully planted mint in. Um, You in Texas probably know what that would be like. It would not take very long for the roots of the mint to overthrow the tomato. There's something else that's very helpful in this analogy, which is that if you put mint next to things like strawberries and tomatoes, um, this really curious thing happens as the tomatoes and strawberries grow by the mint, they start to taste minty. Um, Strawberry mint, I mean, that might make a really nice margarita but um i don't really know about a mint tomato i'm not really sure the application for that of course there's one other thing that's interesting in this story is that it's a seed a person plants in his field and it grows into sort of a tree or a shrub big enough for the birds of the air to come sit on but if you have a garden in texas or anywhere else really the last thing you want in your garden are the birds of the air because they're going to eat all your produce. You know, what you want is not a tree, you want a scarecrow, right, to get the birds of the air away. And so now that I've sort of messed with that, well, what could that possibly mean? How could the kingdom of God be like those rather disturbing images I just share with you? Uh, And I want to share in general that um, I'm pretty sure the reason Jesus tells parables is to to stretch where we already are, not to make us feel better about where we already are, right? Parables aren't told so we can worship ourselves. They're told so we can grow in worship of God, which, which is bigger than where we are, right? So, so just think through this with me, and this isn't much different from where I started. If God's kingdom is really like an invasionary weed, there's something to that, right? That means hopefully that when we sow it in our lives, even in small bits, that it overcomes all the rest of the things that we have. In general, I gotta tell you, I don't really react to God that way. I'm very happy for God to occupy specific plots in the garden of my life, but I really know how to manage the other ones, thank you very much. And, <laughs> and maybe Jesus is saying, faith isn't really designed to be like that. Faith is designed for God to overrun all the parts of our life, especially the ones we're already comfortable with. I don't just mean what we do with our time during the week, but, but, I, but I certainly do mean the way we treat other people at work and at home, the way we treat people on high holy festival days. I mean our politics. I mean faith, maybe Jesus is saying, is really meant to invade our lives. And maybe he's also saying that the fruits of our faith are supposed to taste not the way we want them to, they're supposed to taste like God. And then there's this other really weird thing to think about. And you really have to use your imagination here, and I could be way off, but, but I sort of think maybe Jesus 
It helps, by the way, to tell you, I, I actually hate mustard. I think it's really gross. Um, I just, so I, really, I didn't ever buy one of those seeds because I just don't like it, you know? If Jesus had said it's like a, you know, a gummy worm, I'd have been very happy, but um, <laughs> mustard's just not my thing. Um, so, so, so mustard is already bad for me personally, but you know, in some ways, I actually think that might be part of the point here that, that, that maybe the kingdom of God is not like the pristine produce display at Whole Foods, which is if you've been, right, it's always worth a picture. I mean, that's some lovely looking produce. The meat and the fish counter are great too. I usually think of that as being God's kingdom, perfect and pristine and lovely and wonderful. But you know, maybe Jesus is saying God's just as present in the weeds as God is in the fruits that we're used to looking after. Now that's a tough one to think about, right? Because some of those weeds are thorny. Imagine Jesus is suggesting not that we cultivate weeds in our life, but imagine Jesus is suggesting we cultivate God's presence in the weeds in our life. Imagine God is saying that we look at those people who we usually treat as weeds, you know, the kind we like to just spray Roundup on? You know those people I'm talking about, they're on TV, we're afraid of them. I'm serious. Imagine Jesus is saying in the moment of your fear, Roundup is not the right response. Imagine Jesus is saying something like, God is present even in those places you don't think God could possibly be. And if you can't see it, it's because your imagination is lacking, not God's. That'd be a tough teaching. Usually I think when we hear Jesus as being tough, we're probably closer (laughs) to a better interpretation because you know his friends, the people who followed him around, they deserted him. They left him when he said stuff like this because he was hard. And if we hear it like this, quite honestly, then, then, then I think it's helpful to hear the parable of the yeast too because, you know, for us, as I mentioned, yeast comes in a packet. You know, it's, it's Fleischmann's and we, we pour it out and yeast is fine, right? We understand certainly now that it's, it's uh, just a chemical reaction what happens and leaven's cute, but, but, you know, really that's a waste product that creates that creates that leaven in the bread, so we don't want to overstretch this. At the time of Jesus, so yeast was in the air, and, and yeast actually had become something, if you're Jewish, that it wasn't that it was dirty, it's just that it wasn't holy, because, you know, every Passover, there's one rule, and, and most um, people still observe this today, if they're Jewish, that whatever they do the rest of the year during Passover, they get all the yeast and yeast products out of their home. The source was not that yeast was bad, it was that in the original Passover there wasn't time for the bread to rise. They kneaded the dough and then they exposed it to the air, which would have introduced yeast and overnight would have risen it. They didn't have time, they kneaded the dough and they baked it, because they were getting out of town in the morning, right? They didn't have time in the morning to cook the stuff. So every year, this is this thing, we avoid yeast. This is true at the time of Jesus too, all Passover week. So yeast is not necessarily bad, but it's common. And over time, it starts to become that the holier thing is to not have the yeast. There's something else a little bit contaminated in the story, and you're not going to like it when I say it, but there's a woman kneading the bread. And women, if you're Jewish, according to the, the, the traditional read at the time of Jesus, are unclean about a quarter of the month, ritually, just by virtue of being a woman. So what if Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like a dirty woman that needed some dirty yeast into some bread, and pretty soon the whole thing was full of it? (laughs) 
I think that's what he's saying, by the way. Um, you may not go with me here, but, but I wonder if you did, just temporarily, suspended disbelief. What if Jesus isn't challenging our assumption about who's in God's kingdom and who isn't? What if Jesus isn't asking us to cultivate in our imaginations God's presence even in things that are common or maybe even dirty? Ritually dirty. What if Jesus isn't asking us to think outside of our categories? Because, you know, it's really easy to hear the next two in a funny way as well. The kingdom of God's like a pearl that a merchant looked for his whole life, and when he found that he sold everything he had so he could possess it. Except Jesus doesn't tell you the next key part of the story. Having sold his home or hut and donkey and all of his manservants and maidservants, because he may have owned those people, and then having sold his garments, everything he owned, having sold his underwear so he could buy that pearl, what will he do with it next? He could try to sell it. You ever tried buying jewelry from a naked man? (laughs) This is a really great pearl, come have a look. I mean, that'd be silly, wouldn't it? You really think through it. This is the pearl the guy's been looking for his entire life. He sold everything he has to acquire it, but now the most valuable thing he could ever imagine has no value. He can't eat it and be nourished. He can't. If he gives it away, now he doesn't even have that. If he sells it again, again... Forget about the difficulty of the transaction when you're not wearing clothes. But but beyond that, he'll have parted with the thing he's been spending his whole life just trying to possess because he's so occupied with its loveliness. Now, obviously, if we take that extremely literally, we would all end up like St. Anthony, alone in the desert and naked. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the way to take it. I'm really happy to wear clothes and... um, I like getting together on a weekly basis. I think it's a good idea. Uh, But I wonder if this isn't Jesus doing something hyperbolic and saying, you know, there's a way to living into the kingdom of God that is really different from the way we live in the kingdoms of earth. And and maybe another way to put it, uh, and and sorry if you heard me say this before, you probably did this morning at 9 o'clock if you were there, that the church seems to me to be the only institution that exists precisely for people who aren't members of it. That is, our goal is for the rest of the world, not for ourselves. I think there's something very pearl-like in giving a child $75 worth of school supplies, because let's be honest, there's no economic advantage for us to do that. It's not like we do that so that a child can grow up and come back and be giving members of St. Thomas, right? We do it with the belief, I think, that children are pearls in God's kingdom, and therefore they deserve those school supplies whether they're our children or not, because they're God's. It seems like Jesus is trying to stretch us that way. The story of the field is actually not much different because laws then and now say if you stumble along a chest of pirate doubloons when you're mowing someone's grass and you cover it up and you don't inform the owner and you buy the land, 
Who do those doubloons belong to? You or the owner? Actually, at the time of Jesus, the law says the original owner gets the doubloons. So imagine the story. The guy that mows your grass found a treasure chest of pirate gold worth $50 million. They sold all their lawn care equipment. They bought your house from you. You thought it was at a great deal. The moment they start spending those doubloons, legal action gets involved and they lose them, and you get them. So they've spent all their time pursuing this boon of pirate gold that they can never spend. I wonder if Jesus isn't trying to get us to think that this idea about following God is not a commodity that we can put in our diversified portfolio. This is not increasing our net worth. This is not something we do because God will bless us and make us happier or richer or wiser, contrary to what you've heard on TV. I don't think that's right. I don't think giving money to church makes God give you money in return. I don't think so. I think in some ways, helping and loving people that are helpless and unlovable is extremely countercultural and extremely what God wants us to do and extremely not beneficial to us directly. And we don't do it for the benefit. We do it because that's how God loves everybody. I think this is what Jesus is asking us to stretch our brains around. And then that gives us a choice when we read the last one, this idea about the fish and the good fish and the bad fish. You know, of course, I really want to be one of those good fish because I don't want to be a bad fish. They get thrown up into the fire. But I wonder if there isn't another way to hear it that instead of people being either good fish or bad fish categorically, in the ocean of my life, I've got lots of bad fish. I've got some good ones. I wonder if this isn't a story about what God's going to do when timing is perfect, that the bad fish in my ocean, God's going to take care of for me. We call that heaven, <laughs> where God strips away all that is resistant to God in our lives so that we can enjoy it. And that takes me back to the parable that we started with, with the mustard, because my dad told me at a young age that a weed really is just any kind of plant you don't want. That means if you want an orange grove and you've got a rose garden, the roses are weeds. And maybe this is all about what we do with the people and the things in our life that we don't want. And that's why I'm extremely grateful for the, frankly, very powerful read we got this morning of Romans. This is, the, this is the climax of Paul's letter to the Romans, and it's got some wonderful stuff in it, some wonderful stuff to really wrap our brains around the rest of our lives. And of course, I memorized three of these passages when I was in the fourth grade, because that's what we did. That's how important these passages were. They're all out of the same little chunk here. The first one reads... For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. Beautiful, wonderful read, isn't it? It actually reads a little bit different in Greek. It reads that in all things God is capable of working for the good who love God. 
and are called according to God's purpose. God is capable. Then it seems like the question before us is, if God's capable, are we willing? If God's capable, are we willing? Now, I'm not silly, and I don't believe in a God that engineers disasters in our lives to test us or grow our faith. I didn't believe, like I heard as a child, that the death of a child is so that God could have a rose in the garden of heaven. I frankly think that's sick. But here I think Paul is saying something different. I think Paul is saying that even though God did not engineer, God does not engineer tragedies like cancer and childhood illness and poverty, even though that is absolutely the opposite of God's will, we all know those things happen. I think Paul is saying that even in those thorny weeds of the gardens in which we live, God is somehow capable of turning even those disasters to the good of the world. Not engineering them to do that. See, that's very different. But God is able somehow to bring reconciliation and resurrection and redemption out of even the thorniest patches of soil in which we live if we're willing. Paul moves on. He moves on to use this word that I think can easily be made to say, well, whatever we want. That's that word predestined. And it's related to a word called elect. And foreknew. (laughs) Paul says, God foreknew all the people that God was interested in. And those God predestined. We call them the elect, and one day they're going to be glorified. There's one way to hear those words and say, aha, those elect people, those predestined ones, those are the good fish. I'm one of those good fish, right? (laughs) Please, God, I'm one of those good fish. That means, right, that if you're not one of those, God already knew that you were a thorny weed. And God's just waiting to spray you with Roundup till the end of days. Of course, I guess there's another way to hear the passage. Karl Barth was really helpful with this. Protestant theologian in the 1930s. He really asked the question, who did God foreknow anyway? Some of us or all of us? Are the people in the world we hate, are they children of God or are they children of the devil? I think this is what Paul is asking us to consider. Are there two parents in the world or is there one, the God and Father of all? wonder if Paul isn't asking us to take really seriously what happens at the end of time as we know it. Who wins? God or something else? wonder if Paul isn't asking us to really consider the idea that love wins in the end. And to make his point, passage number three is his conviction that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor powers nor principalities can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
which is way more powerful than it began, because the truth is, that means even our own unwillingness cannot separate us from God's love. <laughs> nothing. Nothing natural, nothing metaphysical. Not our own will, not the will of others, because God has already decided to love us, whether we feel like we're worthy of it or not. It's an extremely powerful passage and extremely challenging for the way I live. It's a beautiful idea in my mind. The center of my being does not live in that idea. In the center of my being, there are weeds to be yanked out. Weeds in myself. Things I'm deathly afraid of because they're not good enough or good-looking enough or well-mannered enough. And then we move on to the people who are all those things are worse. The way you'd be worse is you disagree with me. <laughs> so I'm just kidding. Uh, pulling those things out is usually what I imagine God the gardener doing. I wonder if Jesus and Paul are not inviting us, frankly, to reimagine the way God gardens. I wonder if Jesus and Paul aren't imagining us to consider what kind of seeds it is that God has sown in the first place. Does God sow bad seeds? Or does God sow good seeds? John Calvin thought that God sows bad seeds. John Calvin thought that God planted people on earth so that they could die and go to hell, and that was explicitly their purpose. I just don't know that I can read the Bible and believe that. That sounds like something I would do. <laughs> that doesn't sound like something God, who is greater than I, would do. And then I think we come back full circle to this story about Leah and Rachel. It's one of those stories, honestly, that it's really hard to uplift something that you should emulate from. Sure, it's cute. Tells you why women wear veils at weddings. <laughs> women wear veils so that their dads can marry the ugly ones off. That's how the story goes. <laughs> it also tells you why people open veils at weddings <laughs> so that history is not repeated again. It tells you about a man that didn't love a woman he ended up marrying tells you about a father that didn't care that the husband for his eldest daughter did not love her. I ask you, what's emulatable about that? Leah is a weed in Jacob's garden. And he spends the rest of her life treating her like a weed. It's a story of profound tragedy. That's what I want you to hear. A story none of us should marry into or marry our children into or marry other children into. It's a story that's so strange because throughout the rest of Jacob's life, 
the one who actually loves him is Leah and not Rachel. Jacob, it turns out, doesn't really love anybody. You'll get to hear more on that next week. It's a story in which a dad views his daughter as a commodity who's expensive. He has to feed her and she can't inherit anything. She's a liability. So the goal is to marry her off as quickly as possible and get her off the payroll. Jacob had to pay for her. He had to work seven years to get her. So in some ways, dad got some recoup on a declining investment. While this story is not something to be emulated, I'm positive that this story is very, very true. Very true of the way we often look at each other. I, maybe I'll just talk about myself. There are people in my life that I often reduce to commodity status, to be traded or to be unburdened of. And it's wrong. It's wrong. And we all know it. We've just decided that we can live with doing the wrong thing. But maybe the whole point of the parables is that we stop living with what we've accepted to be okay enough. And that we convert our system of values for one that's better than okay. One that's righteous and just and joyful. And it's really hard to do it. But I think the reason Jesus and Paul are asking us to reconsider these values is not so that we can make God happier by doing the right thing. (laughs) That'd be like a commodity relationship, right? Think the reason they're asking us to consider doing this is so that the world can have more joy than it has already. So that in the middle of the thorns in our lives, whether those be people or ourselves or things that have just happened to us, we can cultivate that God is somehow in the thorns. God is somehow in the weeds. And if we can do that, then the center of our being, not our head, but the center of our being can rest in the assurance of what our head tells us. That God is everywhere at all times. That God is omnipresent. That God will never leave us or forsake us. And then when we can convert the center of our being, you see, we'll be ready to be converted. To go to people who are outside the love of God and be God's love to them. Whether they're weedy or flowery or like us. Both. Both.